hello, hello, and welcome to my podcast, That Show Fucked Me Up. It is I, the beautiful, the talented, the funny, your host, Mariel Vizcarra. Cue in the applause. What is up, Fucked Up Fam? It's your girl. You already know the drill, but if you don't, here it goes. That Show Fucked Me Up is a podcast where I talk about TV shows that fuck me up. This season, I am covering the amazing, the iconic, the never the same show, the Mike Flanagan show, The Fall of the House of Usher. Yes, we are. This is episode four where I will be covering the black cat, the black pussy. No, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for that. So, if you just started listening, you could either just stay here or go back to the beginning of season 12 and start in uh with episode 1. Just so you know what the fuck's going on. A lot of crazy shit's happening. A lot of crazy shit's happening. A lot of deaths. Too many deaths actually. But that's besides the point, irrelevant. Um before we get started with my retelling of the fourth episode of the fall of the house of usher let's do some updates personal updates so i recently got a dm from a listener uh and it was it was uh really nice to hear like someone that is not from the u.s just reaching out and being like hey i just found your podcast they found me uh, because they wanted to listen to something related to skins all of my skins uk baddies stand the fuck up and it was just so nice she's like i really like your your like updates like the personal updates because you it's like we get to learn about you that was so sweet i love that if you are a listener feel free to dm me i'm friendly i'm okay i'm cool well am i cool just kidding (laughs) but yeah personal updates time I had a virtual reading of my play, Estelita Mi Estrellita, which was originally a 10-minute play that I expanded into a full length. And honestly, not there yet with the full length because it's like 60 pages and a full length is around 90. So 30 pages to go, fuck the fam, we're almost there. But honestly, okay, first of all, shout out to my actors. Shout out to my narrator. Dude, my cast was so good. Like my friend Denisa played Estela. My friend Eugen- uh, Eugenia, my friend Fedra played Eugenia. And then uh, an actor I had worked with before, Miguel Gongora Jr., played the detective. Um, It was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. And I feel like even though it was a virtual reading, like, People were still, like, shocked and in awe by how good it was. And so, okay, little background. So, I don't have a shower. <laughs> I mean, I've had a shower before, like like a bath, like a shower, like the one that goes in the restroom right next to the toilet. I currently don't have a fucking shower. Do you understand that? I've been shower hopping since last Friday. It's Wednesday today. I've been shower hopping for five fucking days. Can you believe that? I haven't showered in my own home in the last five fucking days, mate. That was good. 
the virtual reading was on Friday. I obviously didn't have a place to shower, and I hit up my my homegirl, the realest bitch ever, Kelly, aka Kelly Bear, and I was like, hi, hey. No, I actually hit her up the night before because that's when I found out that my shower was leaking into the apartment um, on the bottom floor. And I was like, bitch, I need a place to shower. So she told me to come through. And she's like, hey, do you, like, plan to stay and hang out? Or are you going to go back home? And I'm like, hey, dude, like, there's a virtual reading of my play. And I need to be there, like, for that. So I'll probably just go back home. And she's like, oh, well, my friends are coming over. And I was just going to force them to watch the virtual reading of the play, of your play with me. And I'm like, oh, bet. So we made, like, a whole watching party out of it. I connected my laptop to their TV. And then we just watched it all together, me and, like, three of her friends. It was lovely. It was so nice because I got to see, like, live reactions as well as, like, the like the feedback that I got at the end. So it was a great fucking time. Someone said that if they had money, they would produce it. That's how good it was. And mind you, this, like script teasers i like them because they give me a chance to like share my work but they're not like my targeted audience you know they're older folk mostly english just english speaking so it's just like i'm i write like english spanish plays so i really enjoyed the fact that this play can be accepted by all different types of audiences Oh my god, I also found out something that I didn't have in my notes. Tell me why the writer and director of Past Lives, which I haven't watched yet because I don't think I'm emotionally ready because I know it's going to destroy me in a good way, but destroy me nonetheless. Tell me why Celine Song, I believe it's their name, she was part of the Iati Theater Cimientos play development group that I was a part of last year where I, where I went to New York for the stage reading of my play. But she was like in a previous generation. What the fuck, dude? It just, when I found out, I was like, what? Like, I, I, it didn't like register in my brain yet. Like, obviously she, it wasn't past lives that she developed during that like like workshop it was like another like piece that she had but it just gives me hope that one day like i'm gonna do something fucking huge and not even that i know i'm gonna do something fucking huge i'm gonna it's so close it's so fucking close and I know I can get there. I know I can write for all different types of audiences. I know I can make people feel things with just my writing. And I'm just really excited for my future in writing. I'm really excited about the, all of the opportunities I've gotten and all the opportunities I will get. Because I'm that good. Like, it's not even like I'm cocky or anything. I am confident in the work I put out. Regardless if it's like a short play, uh, a longer play. Like, I know what I bring to the table. And I bring some good fucking shit. 
I bring some raw, genuine fucking emotions. I don't shy away from that in my work. I might shy away from that in my real, like, personal life. I do, I do, and I accept it. Is it something I'm trying to work through? Yes. Is it hard for me to voice my concerns and my thoughts to other people? Yes, it's so fucking hard. But writing comes so easy to me. And I love that. I love that it's easy and it's emotionally rewarding. And I don't want to say that it's just easy because it's not. Because it takes a lot of dedication. But I know I could come up with some great fucking shit. And it just gives me hope that I'm going to do so many things. My name will be known fucked up fam. I'm putting it out here right now. Right now. We're all manifesting. Which circle? Unite. I'm holding on to your imaginary hands right now. This is what we're fucking doing. (sighs) I feel good. I feel fucking good. So, yes, I've been shower hopping for five days. I showered at Kelly's house. I've showered at Alyssa, a.k.a. Yaya, a.k.a. Don Chamango's house. I've showered at my other friend Amber's house. This past two days, since I had, like, to go into uh, the office in person, I showered at the office. We have showers. I showered there. It's a bitch gotta do what a bitch gotta do. And the next four days, I'm going to be dog sitting. And originally, the dog was going to come to my place. And that does not work. I have industrial fucking dryers in my bathroom right now. I'm lucky that I have a fucking toilet. So, yeah, I'm going to be dog sitting. I'm going to be living lavishly because I'm going to be staying at Alyssa, a.k.a. Yaya, a.k.a. Don Chamango's apartment. She is bougie. She has a really nice apartment in, like, a closed like neighborhood not neighborhood like a closed what is it when it's locked i don't know what the complex i don't know what the fuck it's called um the only thing is that it's gonna be raining and dogs hate the rain and i'm like bitch where do i take this bitch well nah cc you're not a bitch well you are because you're a female dog but cc is not a bitch i love her that's my whole ass knees right there but i'm like Yeah, yeah, where do I take your dog to go pee when it's raining? So I'm not looking forward to that. No, I am not. And I'm hoping that since I'm going to have, like, I'll be there, I'll have free time to work on the podcast because I need to. I really need to. What else? Pop culture current events. What the fuck is going on with the Mac the Stallion and Nicki Minaj beef? First of all, Barb's, Barb's, don't fucking come for me. Do not fucking come for me. You will never make me hate Megan the Stallion. Protect her at all costs. She's out here doing this shit, this rap shit all alone. And I will die for her. Y'all know I don't idolize anyone and I don't. Like, I know artists and, like, musicians are human beings at the end of the day. But Meg the Stallion has a really soft, like, spot in my heart. I appreciate the craft. I appreciate the motherfucking hustle. And Nikki, Nikki, honey, you retaliating with like dropping a diss track after Megan the Stallion said like, y'all ain't worried about Megan. You're worried about Megan's law. Nikki, are you, are you dumb? Bitch, are you dumb? No, the barbs are going to come for me. 
how does Nicki Minaj not understand that her responding to that makes it true that she knows that her husband is and her brother are like pedophiles? Like, girl, you just validated everything. Sometimes, you know what we should learn? Sometimes people should just shut the fuck up. And I feel like a lot of people don't know and don't appreciate the art of shutting the fuck up. Girl, just sometimes you just need to let the things that previously bother you just go over your head. You do it. It's like it's called maturing. And it's a level of maturity that Nicki Minaj still doesn't have. Because now she's taking out this horrible diss song. Girl, girl, where was your ghostwriter, girly? I'm right here. I'm right here if you need me. (laughs) But it's like, it's horrible. The beat sucks. And she's like throwing so much shade at like Megan for getting shot by Tory Lanez. And she's like saying that it's not real. And she's throwing shot at Megan's mom. Megan the Stallion's mom who passed away, like, you're grasping at straws, and Megan didn't even call you out directly. I'm calling Megan the Stallion Megan as if she's my best friend. We're BFFs. It's fine. But you're throwing all these shots, and Megan the Stallion only said Megan's law. Ooh, she's hurting. Nicki Minaj? Girl. Love. Sweetie pie. If there's something you should know about me, I was a Nicki Minaj stand back in the day. Absolutely. I went to one of her concerts. Roman's Revenge? Monster? Iconic. Iconic. Bottoms Up? Iconic. An icon. A legend in her day. Sweetie, stop. It's not cute. It's not a good look, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Um, Another pop culture current event. Elmo checking in with us and then all of us trauma dumping on his ass. Also, Elmo's three. Elmo's three years old. Do y'all understand that? Y'all are trauma dumping on a three-year-old. But I read a, a tweet and it's like, TV shows aren't just, like, like kid TV shows aren't just kid TV shows. They have, like, a high level of, like, I wish I could find the tweet. I'm like, did I retweet that shit? Let me, let me look that shit up. Let me look up that shit up real quick. I don't know why I'm talking like that. (sighs) I don't know where it's at. Also, I tweeted because someone is, like, half the the account avatar universe and i know my adhd brain is <laughs> completely changing the subject but the fucking <laughs> why, why am i like this the tweet the tw- the twitter account called avatar universe posted some pictures of hama of the southern water tribe and then i said they could never make me hate a vindictive bitch like hama i just needed to share that like she could blood Ben, like that bitch has all my respect and hama we trust okay no i couldn't find the tweet but it was basically like don't take children tv for granted like it's i don't know i don't know 
I'm so sorry, fuck the fam. I I failed you. I failed you because I did. I don't know how to explain the tweet. It's just like high levels of empathy, and we're still like children. People, not children. We're not children. People from our generation like feel so safe around Elmo because we were raised by Sesame Street. And then it, they also brought up like Blue's Clues when when Steve from Blue's Clues came back, and we were all like so fucking sentimental because that's our childhood right there. <sighs> I'm sorry I couldn't articulate this better, but besides the point, irrelevant. Podcast updates. Remember to like the podcast, give it a five star review. You already know the drill. It helps visibility. It helps more people join the fucked up fam and become part of the shared psychosis we all experience. Thank you. Thank you. Also, I am part of POTS Network. That is P O D Z network.com. They create content for me. They help me promote the podcast. I love them because a bitch doesn't have time. A bitch wished she had time. Um, but yeah, go check out Pots Network. Go check out some of the podcasts in the network. You know what? We have time right now. Let me share some of the podcasts that are part of Pots Network. Let me tell you right now. It's the Sister Sesh podcast where two sisters get together and sesh it out and then they talk. And I think that's beautiful. That's fucking beautiful. Also, Truth Lies Shenanigans. I was a guest for one of their episodes. Shout out to the homies. Y'all are amazing. I love you. That short, less than an hour interaction we had, it was great. This one, I think this one's new, honestly. It's called The Girlies Club Podcast. So this is our description. Hey, girls, we're Nadine and Daisy, just a couple of gals that love to hang out, vibe, and always have unhinged conversations. I, oh, my God, I scratched my mic. I love unhinged conversation. The Girlies Club, hit me up. Ring me up. Hi. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> and they're, they're like, our focus would be discussing random topics since we love to talk. Oh my God, so do I. So come vibe with us and get to know what it's like in the girlies club. The girlies that get it, get it. And the girlies that don't, don't. Ah, amazing. I love. You know what? Let me also read the description for Sister Sesh Pod. So Sister Sesh listeners are taking on a journey with two stoner sisters, Alicia or Alicia and Kat, as they navigate through their life, relationships, and sisterhood. Get ready to roll one and light it up on the couch as these two sisters share their experiences and perspectives on a range of topics in a lighthearted and humorous way. Sister Sesh, Sister Sesh, what's up? <laughs> what's up what's up i could be part of the sisterhood i love that and then there is a podcast called this is the live podcast everyday life everyday struggles this is life things that you may or may not like to hear guess what they will be said here i'm snapping my fingers yes Sometimes the hardest things to say are the ones that should be said out loud. 
So be prepared. Local, national news, celeb tag, talk, various topics and interviews with everyday people from all walks of life will be featured. Hi, I'm an everyday person from all walks of life. How you doing? <laughs> this is the life pod. Hi, hit me up too. Let's collaborate. I mean, we're all part of Pods Network, so we should collaborate. And then next episode, I'll highlight the other podcasts that I didn't get to, okay? All righty. So this has been an intro, and it's going to be an even longer episode because one thing about Mike Flanagan, you already know, he loves his fucking long ass episodes. So let's get started. All right. Episode four of The Fall of the House of Usher is called The Black Cat. And of course, we're starting with an excerpt from Edgar Allen's Poe's short story by the same name, The Black Cat. All right, here it goes. One night, as I sat, half stupefied, in a den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin or of rum, which constituted the chief fortune of the apartment. I had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes, and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon. I approached it and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto, and closely resembling him in every aspect, respect but one. Pluto had not a white hair upon any portions of his body, but this cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white, covering nearly the whole region of the breast. There it goes. All right, let's get started. The episode starts with cats meowing and police sirens in the background. And then we see Napoleon show up to a pet store and he's saying how he's looking for a pussy douchebag. Actually, it's not a pet store. It's a sh uh, like a animal shelter. And he's like, I'm looking for a pussy. And he's like, it has to be a very specific pussy cat. And he's like, this is the fifth place that I've tried today. And he's he's like, Oh, and you're a sore for sore eyes. You're a sight for sore eyes. And he mentions all the ogres he had to deal with before. And he, and he says, I need a black cat, female. And then he motions with his hands about how big the cat is. And he asks the front desk person, please tell me you can handle that. And we finally see who it is. And of course, it's motherfucking Verna. She is at the front desk of the animal shelter. She calls him a cutie and she's like, I can handle that just fine. So then we see uh, her showing him a couple of cats who are not black. And she meant she's like, oh, they, they are short timers. And how they're sh she's like, our shelter is not a no kill shelter. And she's like, I've always had a soft, soft spot for the short timers. And he tell and he tells her how the cat has to be black. And Napoleon sees one and he's like, what about this one? Verna tells him how that one is not available and how it's a full breed cat that has already gotten four applications online. And she mentions how sometimes she doesn't intervene, the other cats don't get a home. Napoleon is mesmerized by the cat and he calls the resemblance to Pluto fucking uncanny. And Verna's like, is like, 
like I said, she isn't available. Napoleon turns around and says, I don't think you know who I am. I am a money bum. New cages, new computer, new building. I will adopt every cat here and donate it to an orphanage. Set you up waterside in a new facility with tiny little kitten hot tubs. Verna mentions how the cats would probably hate that. And Napoleon says how he will dress her in all Louis Vuitton if he has to, but how he's walking out of there with that cat. We then see Verna take the black cat from the cage and Napoleon is still shocked over how it looks exactly like Pluto and he asks Verna to hold the cat the exact same way as the reference picture which is Julius holding Pluto and then he snaps a picture of both of them. Napoleon tells the cat, you little fucker, you saved my balls. So cut to Napoleon walking through the front door of his condo saying, look who I found in the front door. But Julius is not there. And then Pluto's replacement is trying to have like, like get off of Napoleon's grasp. And then he scratches him in the wrist. Napoleon calls uh, Pluto's replacement a little cunt. And then his phone starts to ring as he sees Pluto run to the other room. Napoleon enters the phone and he says, hey, dad, I'm kind of busy. And then he responds, the fuck you say? Say that again. There's a pause and Napoleon continues. No, no, that's bollocks as he hangs up the phone. In present day, Roderick says to Dupont, denial. It's amazing how far you can get on denial. His phone rings and it's a text from Lenore and he just looks at, at it as he continues. Do you know why so many people use denial to get by? Because it really fucking works. Dupont asks if it's his granddaughter texting again. And he asks if she's okay since it's late. And he's like, do you want to take it? And Roderick says how she's fine. And he continues saying how the thing about denial it is that it convinces you how things are not worse. And how it is like a placebo effect. Dupont is startled from noise coming from the basement. And Roderick tells him how it's just Madeline. And Dupont... Dupont asks what she's doing down there, and Roderick responds that she's probably tinkering with her gigabyte or some such. He calls her a, gen a genius, a real one, like four or five people in a century are lucky to be like her, and how she quit Mensa because she was bored. And I looked up what Mensa was, and it's like Mensa International Organization of Individuals with High IQs that aim to identify, understand, and support intelligence, encourage research into intelligence, and create and seek both social and intellectual experiences for its members. So, Madeline was like, fuck this Mensa people. <laughs> I'm smarter than them. <laughs> Dupont says how maybe they should loop her into the conversation to throw a little genius in the mix. Roderick completely ignores the suggestion, and he's like, where were we? Oh, denial. Sometimes it works, but other times it doesn't. It really fucking doesn't. Cut to another conference room with all of the remaining siblings, the Pym Reaper, Madeline, and Roderick, and his child bride, Juno. Napoleon is visibly upset, and he's saying how he doesn't believe this and how something is fucking off. Madeline lets him know that they're still looking into it, and Napoleon wants to know what she was doing there to begin with. And he turns to look at Victorine, and he says how it was her lab. And Victorine lets him know how she doesn't know why Camille was there, and how she did not send her there. And she suggests that maybe the 50 million, oh, not 5 million, 50 million bounty had something to do with it. Napoleon asks what she's been doing to those things, and he calls them her little cyborg murder monkeys. And Victorine lets him know how he's not going to put that one on her. And Frederick stands up and says how his wife is in the ICU 
maimed. And he he repeats, she's maimed. Tammy stands up as well. And she's like, what are we even talking about here? There's the trial. I have to launch. And Madeline tells him to all sit down. And she says how they have the right to be angry and be shocked and yell and to do it in there. And how that this is the place for it. But when they go outside, someone has to make a statement to the press and how they all think it should be Napoleon. Juno begins to say how it's just so awful and how she's sorry for their loss. And Tammy says, why is it talking? It shouldn't be talking right now. Frederick, Frederick is like, just, what? Oh, Frederick kind of defends Juno. And he's like, she's just saying she's sorry. How do you expect her to feel? This is a crisis. We need to mitigate the damage. Tammy says, that's what I'm saying. That is why we had Camille. This was her thing. Napoleon starts reading out loud the statement that the Pym Reaper gave him to read. And it says, on behalf of myself and the Usher family, I'm saddened to announce the loss of our beloved Camille Lespon, age 35. Napoleon is like, what the fuck is this? And Tammy says, yeah, that's awful. Are we really going with 35? Napoleon continues, fucking robo-chimps, rips off my sister's face, and I'm saddened? Roderick finally speaks up, and he tells him to put it in his own words if he wants, and to plagiarize Candle in the wind for all he cares, but how right now everyone needs to toe the line, and, and how this is not about sticking together, it's about forming a fucking wall, and how in case they hadn't noticed, Morellis in the hospital, Prospero is dead, and Camille is dead, so they should save the static until he can figure out what the fuck is going on. And how until then, he doesn't care if Madeline tells him to fart into a microphone on national TV and how they just need to fucking do it. He calls them battle station and how he's the commanding officer and how the only thing he wants to hear from them is sir, yes, sir. And he asks if they get him. Frederick responds right away, sir, yes, sir. And both Tammy and Victorine roll their eyes. And Madeline says how... Now that this is out of their system, system, they can go outside and do their part. And Napoleon gets up and crumbles the statement he was given to read and he throws it on the ground as he tells his dad to tell Tammy or Frederick to do his sound bites. And he's like, and, and, and Frederick is like, don't call me that. And Napoleon just says, fuck this. Tammy calls after him and Napoleon is like, what, don't like it? Cut me out of the fucking will. Give my share to the next junkie tart you find in the ER. So Napoleon starts to walk out and Arthur Pym grabs him by the arm to stop him. And Napoleon turns around to stare at his dad with tears in his eyes. And Roderick gives Pym the sign to let him go. And Napoleon walks out. Victorine turns to Tammy and asks if Juno's in the will. And Tammy's like, oh, no, Juno's not really in the will. As she chuckles and then she asks Roderick, is she dead? And Juno chimes in how she's still in the room. So, <laughs> so cut to Pym the Pym Reaper showing them video footage of when Camille got to room work and he's explaining how the week the weeknight shifts are covered by a guy named Philip and Madeline sees Verna sitting behind the security desk and she mentioned how that does not look like a Philip. Arthur explains how Philip was called off to go in and, it and how it had to be someone from corporate that called his supervisor and told him to stand out and how they don't know who called and that they don't know who that woman is. Roderick asks if they got audio, and Arthur says how they don't because it's not really a thing with security cameras. And Madeline asks him to stop the video, and Roderick gets close to the screen, and he asks him to enhance. And Pim lets him know that that is also not a thing, and Roderick is shocked that he can't enhance the image because he sees that shit all the time in TV. 
and Arthur says how he can zoom in, and he does, and he asks if they recognize that woman. And Roderick sarcastically says how it's hard to tell and how it would be easier if they could enhance the image. Pim now asks Madeline, and she says she doesn't know, but how she doesn't think she knows that woman. And Pim explains how they don't even have female security guards at Rue, so that they so that all they know is that she should not be there. Madeline mentions how then it makes it intentional, and she asks if they think it's the same woman from Perry's club, and Pim says how he can't confirm that yet. Madeline says how they need to confirm anything uh, and to tell everyone to take up arms since they're at war. Oh, she's like, we don't need to confirm everything and tell everyone to take up arms since we're at war and how she does not know with who or how, but that she knows what it feels like when a bullet flies by and how they need to find that woman. So cut to Napoleon and, and Julius's place and Napoleon is standing in his closet yelling about how they have not even made arrangements for Perry yet. And he asked how it works. And if they double up the services, he asked, what's worse, a double funeral or attending two separate ones? He also says how he doesn't even own anything funeral black. Julius calmly says how they can get him something to wear. And Napoleon says how he doesn't even own a black suit. And then he he retraces and says how that is not true and how he does have one false alarm. And he like grabs it from his closet and he yells, it's fucking satin. Julian lets him know how they will take care of it. And Napoleon says how he can hear Camille's voice in his head right now, saying how satin is silk for poor people and how no one should wear it to a funeral unless they died in it. Julius tries to comfort him by saying how it's tough and how he can't talk his way out of it. And he asks Napoleon what he can do for him. Napoleon says, stays quiet and Julius gets it and gives him his space. And he asks if he has seen Pluto since he brought her back in. And Napoleon says how she probably just she's probably just skittish and hiding. And Julius says how he's going to put out some more food for her to coax her out. Napoleon goes back to put the suit back and he sees something and Pluto jumps out from behind his clothes and he yells out to Jules. But then when he comes back, Pluto is nowhere to be found. And Napoleon says how he just missed her. We're now in court and we see that none of the ushers are there, not even their lawyer. And it seems like they have been waiting around for it. DuPont stands up and tells uh, the judge how this might be intentional, and the judge is like, I'm going to give it a few more minutes. DuPont says, with respect, if I was half an hour late to court, I would expect to be charged with contempt. The judge asks what DuPont is suggesting, and DuPont just says how it seems that, uh, that, there, uh, that there are different rules for people like the ushers. The judge tells him to save it for the jury, and he's about to. And Dupont is about to sit down and defeat. But then Arthur Pym walks in, and he's like, "I'm sorry, Your Honor." The judge lets Pym know how him and Dupont were discussing the parameters of contempt of court. But Pym explains how the Usher family has been hit with another tremendous loss, and he announces how Camille is dead. And there are gasps throughout the courtroom. Pym continues and says he apologized for his tardiness because it's been a busy morning and how the family is in shock understandably and that he has no additional information at the time. DuPont mentions how the government was unaware of this loss and he asks what happened exactly. The judge tells him how they will reconvene on Monday and he gives his sympathies to the Usher family during their difficult time and he bangs his gavel. DuPont tries to stop Pim before he leaves but Pim is like not right now. So cut to Roderick in Victorine's office asking why Camille had been at room morgue at the in the middle of the night. Victorine says how she does not know, and Roderick says to just tell her because he will find out sooner rather than later. Victorine says how she honestly does not know, and Roderick mentions how she was probably following a lead, so it had to do with her work 
or how she was onto something that Victorine was doing and how she had a nose for Snoopy. Victorine is, ask, is asking if he's asking if she's the informant or if it was Camille. And Roderick is, I'm sure it was not Camille. And Victorine is like, just ask me already. And Roderick comes out and just asks her, are you the informant? He's like, maybe you talked with the feds and got a little over your head. Victorine is clearly upset because she says that she would bleed for the Usher family. And Roderick asks again, so why was she here? Again, Victorine reiterates how she does not know and how maybe it had something to do with the profile they were writing about her. Victorine speculates that uh, she thinks Camille was looking at the chimps because she wanted to torpedo her project. And he asks why? And she responds, for fun. Roderick asks if she knows how much it cost him to get her access to the chimps. And he explains that it wasn't even the cost of the waiver and how he had to build, he had to build 10 miles of new habitat for them. And Victorine says how she knows. Roderick is like, and this animal. And he basically is trying to say, ended up killing your sister. Like the, the animal that I built 10 miles of habitat for, one of them ended up killing your sister. And he wants to know what Victorine does to them. Victorine says how the device does not cause aggression. And Roderick asks, where is it now? And Victorine thinks he's asking about the chimp. So she says that it's dead. And Roderick is like, I'm not asking about the fucking monkey. He says how he's asking about the $200 million of intellectual property wrapped around its shitty dead heart. Victorine says how they removed the device and how the monkey is irrelevant. And Roderick does not think so because it will be right at the fucking center if they look into it. And he asks if he should just pull the plug on her project and put this and put it out of its misery and free up some money for Napoleon's video games or Tammy's gold bug lunch. And Victorine says, look. We're moving to human trials. This absolutely changes everything um, for Roderick. And he says how that is what he was waiting to hear. And he asks if she thinks she has the data to get it approved. And she says how she does. And Roderick calls it excellent news. He takes a beat and then continues and says how he, he knows he has been. And then he tells her how this project is important to him. We're now with Pim and Frederick, and Frederick and Pim is showing him things, the things Morel had on her when she was at Perry's party, um, and like when like the things that she had left at the locker, and he explains to her that how they went through her primary phone. Phone. Frederick wants to know how Pim was able to get access to her phone. Phone, and Pim lets lets him know that he has all of their phone passwords, and Frederick is like, that makes sense. Pim tells him how he has got a delicate situation, so he needs to treat it in a delicate manner. And Frederick says he understands. Pim takes out another phone and shows it to Frederick and says how they found it in Maury's back. And Frederick says how it is in hers. And Pim responds, we are sure it is hers, but we can't open it. Frederick says how, um, again, tells him that it's not hers. And Pim responds how it's fine, but that they were hoping he will try to unlock it. Frederick doesn't understand because he knows that phone is in Maury's, but Pim just tells him to try a few combinations. So he tries their anniversary and then Lenore's birthday, but those don't work. And Frederick says how he can keep trying, but that it won't work out. And Pim just reiterates how the other phone checks out, but that it's important that they get into this one so that they can see what's in the inside. Frederick asks if they found her wedding ring yet, and he wants to know where it is. And Pim just tells him, to keep trying to unlock the phone. 
We then see Roderick in his office, and he receives a text from Pim with a picture of Verna as the security guard. So he was able to enhance it, and he says, and um, so he asks if it's someone he knew. We also see Madeline as she's looking at the picture, and she's in her car, and she asks her driver to go somewhere else before they go back to the office. Her driver parks and opens the door for her, and she looks around, and she begins to walk down the street, and she seems to have found what she was looking for, and she says to herself, don't be stupid, Madeline. This is crazy. This is fucking crazy. So she's standing in front of a building with a shit ton of graffiti, graffiti, but it has a black raven painted at the top. And then an actual raven just stands above the painted one. So we're back with Roderick and he's in the basement of his like of the Fortunato building. And he's still staring at the picture of Verna and he hears the sounds of jingle bells coming from the other side of the brick wall. A brick wall, a brick wall, haunting of Hill House. So, so we're now with Victoring at her office and Pamela Clem, uh, the patient with heart issues, a.k.a. Verna, in one of her costumes, is there and she's signing some paperwork. Verna mentions how it's a lot of pap paperwork and Victoring says how it's standard practice and Verna says, it's a good thing I trust you. So Victorine mentions how it's a big part of what they're doing and Verna shares how she thinks so, but how you can never be too sure because you hear a lot of stories, like how big pharmaceutical companies test their drugs in low-income countries. And she asks if she's heard of that. And Victorine does say how she's heard of it. And Verna continues and says how she figured it was because people were more likely to take the money and less likely to, to complain or more reluctant to report the side effects, or how maybe they didn't even know of them, or how they were not even told what the risks were, or they simply didn't understand them. Victorine argues that there's another edge to that sword and how perhaps it offers them access to medication and procedures that they might not be able to afford, so the testing site might be decided on the need for who needs it the most. Victorine continues and says how she guesses why this opportunity is going to her because she actually needs it. Verna says how she's grateful for the chance and how it is a beautiful device that was created in the US of A and how it is going to someone whose life could really change. And she says how she's lucky to be a part of it. She hands her paperwork to Victorine and when she's done, she sees the prototype of the device behind her and Verna stands up to look at it and she asks if the device goes inside her heart like a pacemaker. Victorine gets up and she explains how the device is passive at first and she begins to explain what it will do once it is up and running. Collect real-time data, locate blockages before they become clots or strokes, prevent numerous cardiovascular issues, and then if it goes well, it will take over and keep her heart beating perfectly in rest, stress, exercise, exertion, all of it for many more decades to come. Verna's excited about this and hugs Victorine and is like, okay then. And she wants to know when they will start. And Victorine speculates that they will start at the end of the week. And Verna wants to confirm that Dr. Ruiz will perform the surgery herself. And she says, and uh, Victorine lets her know that she will and how she's very excited about this too. So cut to Frederick and Lenore having dinner and he's just staring at the phone uh, that Pim gave him. And Lenore tells her dad how he has to eat because he has not he she has not seen him eat in two days frederick asks if she's seen that phone before and if she noticed her mom having it and lenore says how she hasn't and she asks why her, her mom would have two phones frederick says how he doesn't think it's hers and how they probably made a mistake but how they should probably find out who the phone belonged to and give it back and lenore agrees how they should 
Frederick asks Lenore if kids know how to hack into stuff, and Lenore says how kids are not really able to do that. And Frederick asks if she has any idea of how he of how he can get into the phone. And Lenore says that there are only three things to unlock a phone, passcode, fingerprint, or face. And Frederick is like, mine does that too. And, this, and Lenore is like, well, yeah. But she does comment on how the wallpaper on that phone is factory preset and how Maury always used pictures of her cakes. And Frederick is like, then that must mean it's probably not hers. It's now nighttime and Napoleon and he's in, in bed, just like moving back and forth, like tossing and turning. And Julius wakes up and says, he's like, you're killing me with all this, the movement. And Napoleon doesn't understand why he can't go to sleep since he took a bunch of those yellow pills, which means he should be in a two-day coma. Julius is like, I'm sorry. And he asks if there's anything he can do for him. And Napoleon is like, now that you mention it. Julius is like, are you really thinking about that, right? And Napoleon responds that people grieve in different ways. And Julius is like, if it will help you sleep. So Napoleon gets comfy, uh, comfy for the sloppy toppy. Uh, am I right? Yeah, yeah. But it seems like it's not working out for him. And then he looks over to the side and he notices Pluto's replacement looking at him like in the dark so we could only see the cat's bright eyes staring right at him as he's getting his dick sucked he whispers creepy little fuck and julius is like mm? and napoleon tells him how he's fine and to continue so napoleon is still having a hard time getting comfy and he puts his hand under his pillow and he feels something wet and when he pulls out his hand it has blood and he jerks up and he accidentally hits julius in the nose uh, so Julius gets out from the bed to look at his nose as Napoleon apologizes and then he looks under the pillow and he finds a dead rat and he calls out to Jules how his cat left them a present in bed and how he's going to have to throw out the, the sheets, burn the bed and also maybe have to move out. Back in present day, Roderick tells Supon how displacement is the other go-to coping mechanism for his family. And it's when you turn your reactions towards someone that is not threatening. So you get to react and be angry, be abusive and be violent, and you don't risk big consequences. And Dupont says how he's familiar with displacement. And Roderick says how he knows he is. And he asks how many nights did poor Ernie bear the brunt meant for, for him? And uh, Roderick is referring to Dupont's husband. Dupont just reiterates how he's familiar. And Roderick says how Napoleon was the one that embraced these coping mechanisms, denial, displacement, projection, but how he wanted something better for him, for all of them, a trait of his that seemed to have skipped them and how it is sublimation. Roderick says how that is a coping mechanism that is considered positive because that means that a person chooses to redirect strong emotions into an object or an activity that's appropriate and safe. So instead of lashing out to your employees, you pour your energy into kickboxing, for example. And right as Roderick says the word kickboxing, a loud thud is heard and something or someone drops right in front of him as if they have dropped from the ceiling. So he's startled and he's looking down at the floor in terror and we see it's Napoleon's dead body and it's all scratched up. Dupont is obviously like startled by Roderick's reaction. He's like, what the hell? And then Napoleon pulls up his head from the ground and he's about to get up. But Roderick begins to yell into the direction of the floor. I was talking. I was fucking talking. Dupont gets up because um, he's like 
startled by Roderick yelling at nothing on the floor, and he yells out, Jesus. He wants to know what the hell is wrong with him, and Roderick begins to apologize, and DuPont tells him not to raise his voice at him, and he continues, you talk about displacement all you like. You don't point that shit at me. You understand? I will knock your goddamn lights out if you raise your voice at me. Roderick says how he's right and how he's sorry and says how that is not his fault and how he respects him and how he always has. And DuPont is shaking with anger and he says, you've had a funny way of showing it throughout the years. Roderick asks if he remembers the day they met and DuPont says, of course I do. Roderick says how he thought a lot of things after the day and how he saw the world from a different lens after they met. Never imagined what, that they would end up there. There is the sound of a bell buzzing, and we're in a flashback, and a young Augie Dupont is ringing the bell at Roderick's apartment. Dupont says how he's looking for a Roderick Usher, and Roderick wants to know why, and Dupont asks if that's him, and Roderick says how at some point he will need to tell him who he is, and Dupont says how he knows, but that he does not want the door shut at his face, and he introduces himself, and he says how he's trying to do some good, and how he needs help doing that, and that he's hoping that he's the kind of man that will help, and how, and how he's there because he's a Medicare fraud investigator, and he wants to talk to Roderick because he works at Fortunato. Roderick tries to shut the door in his face, but DuPont explains that he has 36 names on the list and how he has had 30 people shut the door on him, and he asks if he can hear him out and how he wants to set some things right. And Annabelle, who had been hearing, is like, come in. Inside the apartment, Annabelle serves him some tea, and DuPont asks Roderick if he can look at those forms, and Roderick says how he does not know what those are, and DuPont says how they're consent forms for a drug trial, and how Dr. Brevet is involved with all of these, and he asks how well he knows Dr. Brevet. Roderick says how he does not know him at all, and he asks who he is. DuPont says how he's an associate of Fortunato's clinical trials division, and he asks if he's sure he does not know him. Annabelle steps in and says how he probably can't say a lot, but he would just, he would, he would just, if he would just tell them what he's after, they might be able to help more. DuPont explains that a lot of people in the drug trials did not sign the forms themselves and how he believes some of the signatures are forged and how the doctor has been enlisting some of them in studies without fully informing them or their families about the possible side effects. Annabelle is shocked by this and DuPont mentions how some of the people involved in these drug trials that they did not consent uh, that that did not consent are dead now and how some of their bodies Annabelle interrupts and says how she does not know much about pharmaceutical companies but how she does know her husband so if he knew this was going on he would have taken action DuPont says how there's a reason he's on the list because when Dr. Brevet enrolls a new patient the enrollment letter goes through different levels of diversification and some levels need to contact the patient and confirm data and arrange payment and to confirm that they're competent and actually consenting. Roderick wants to know what he's getting at and DuPont tells him how his signature is there next to Brevet and Roderick grabs the paper and inspects it. Annabelle also wants to see it, and then DuPont shows him other times where his signature was used. Annabelle says how that is not his signature and Roderick takes the paper from her and is like, honey, hold up. DuPont asks if she's saying it was forged and Roderick responds with a no and how he is not saying that and Annabelle just states how it is not his signature. But Roderick reiterates again how it, he, she is not saying that and he wants to confirm that their conversation is off the record. DuPont confirms that it is off the record and Roderick says how he cannot recall if he did or did not sign those particular papers, but how he's happy to look into it as soon as possible. 
Dupont seems disappointed and says how a lot of people are having a hard time recalling a lot of things. And he gets up and asks what they do what they do to them over there in Fortunato and if everyone that works there is concussed or something. Dupont apologizes for his comment and tells Roderick how he knows he's a lower rung guy and he says how he is too and how they both got bosses they need to report to and how he gets it uh, and that if he says the wrong thing or his wife says the wrong thing, it can knock him right off that rung out of the job even and how he sees their kids and their homemade toys and how he knows they go hand to mouth just like he does. And how he figures that both kids sleep in the room and how their jar of honey is almost gone and how he sees the honey on the floor and how he knows that it is not an, and how he knows that it is an old home remedy for sick ch- children. And he mentions the coffee mugs by the sink, meaning that one of them stayed up all night with their sick kid trying to make uh, them take the honey and how due to the amount of mugs, it means that both of them were up. DuPont calls them good parents who can't afford medicine. So yeah, he is smart not to recall because he can't afford to risk it because it is hard to say the wrong thing, but how it is even harder to do the right thing. He tells Roderick that if he changes his mind uh, and he leaves his business card before walking out. So cut to still young Roderick barging into, uh, no, well, he doesn't barge this time. He walks into Griswold's office and Gris calls it, he's like, he calls it all bullshit and how he's sorry that the fraud investigator showed up at his door and how he will call health and human services to make sure they stop harassing his people because they have no right. Roderick wants to talk about his signature in the form and Gris continues, these people think that medicine happens in a vacuum, like we lock ourselves in clean room with a beaker and a bunch of burners and we walk out with penicillin. They have no respect for what it takes to develop the test and market a drug and how the real laboratory is the real world. Roderick is like the signature on the forms and Gris asks if he knows what the real world is variable because in the real world, there are surprises and errors and anomalies anomalies and acts of God and all that they could and all that they can weather it for all the whiny cheeps out there the complaints and the lawsuits and the investigators and how the reason they do it is so that their dick can stay hard just a little longer or so they can kick their headaches sooner Roderick finally comes out and says how his signature was forced forged Grish Gris tells him that it wasn't and Roderick says that it was in at least half a dozen forms Gris begins to smoke a cigarette as he asks Roderick if he's a team player and if he he's a he's part of Fortunato team. Uh, Roderick says that he is, and Gris asks what he thinks that means in his mind. Roderick is about to elaborate, and Gris says, "Because you come to me and tell me that your name was forged on import, important internal documents, documents that apparently have been stolen by the Medicare investigator, then it seems like he's you're on their team." And Roderick says that he's just looking for an explanation. And Gris responds, and I'm explaining that this company is a team. We're a unit and how this is this is not about sticking together. This is about forming a fucking wall because there are elements out there that would threaten all of us if they if we let them go, if we let them. So we're all we're all at a fucking at our fucking battle station and I'm the commanding officer. And the only thing I want to hear from your mouth is, sir, yes, sir. Do you get me? Literally the same line Roderick used on his kids earlier this episode. So Roderick nods and says how he gets it. And Chris tells him to say it. And Roderick responds, sir, yes, sir. So literally a parallel to Frederick. 
or Froderick. Gris says how he will look into it, but if there's a clerical error, then he will uh and then he will correct it but at the end of the day it's the same thing because everyone in that building they're on are a team everybody approves everything regardless of whose name is on the form roderick lets him know that he's 100 percent on the team and gris says how that is great and he lets roderick know how these clerical clerical errors are old and it was from before he showed true potential and before he put him under his wings and how those types of clerical clerical errors won't, won't happen anymore since he's in the officer's club now so that he can relax and he just tells him to remember what team he's on and how he will be fine. Gris lets Rhetoric know that he drives a 1979 Ferrari and he mentions how it is an extraordinary car and when you drive a car like that you make a statement and how if he continues to do his part that that sooner rather than later he will be driving whatever car he wants and parking in the driveway at whatever house he wants because he is willy fucking wonka and how fortunato is his chocolate factory and how roderick just got his golden ticket and if he plays his cards right one day this might all belong to him and then he suggests that they have a drink since it's probably noon somewhere so we are at a discussion between Madeline, Roderick, and Annabelle, and Annabelle's telling Roderick how he should quit, and Roderick says how they will starve, and Annabelle says how she will get a job. And he says, how about a degree? Can you get one of those too? Bro, Roderick, ouch! And Annabelle's like, hey now. Roderick apologizes and says how if he quits, Griswold will destroy him and how maybe he can go to a competitor first and get him before Gris can destroy his reputation. And he mentions how Griswold said he's part of the club now and how he has to get he has got his back and he just stays quiet like he said and annabelle says and annabelle like steps in and mentions how the industry is ugly and roderick says how it does not have to be madeline is listening to all of this and she finally speaks up and says jesus christ both of you and then she turns to roderick and she says they forged your signature roderick your name our name is on it on evidence of a crime Christ, nobody knows they're the fall guy until they're falling. You work for a competitor, they'll never trust you. You stay at Fortunato, they'll never respect you. You just ate a spoonful of their own shit in front of them and smiled. You can't be part of the club now. You can't be an equal, not when they're watching you eat their shit. That's just nature, which is double fuck because your father built this company. It's your birthright, Roderick, our birthright. They stay quiet and Madeline continues, you're going to go to work and you're going to keep eating that shit and you're going to you're going to make Rufus Griswold think it's your favorite food and then you're going to call this number and she shows him uh, the business card that DuPont left. Your wife is right. It's the right thing to do. We're going to call him tomorrow and you you're going to become friends, best friends with August DuPont. Cut to Julius opening the blinds in the morning and Napoleon is hungover. And the first thing he does is grab the Guinness in his nightstand. And he asks Julius, uh, he asks how uh, Julius is, is feeling, how Julius is feeling because, you know, he hit his nose the night before. And Julius says how it's sore and Napoleon apologizes again. And Julian is like, it's okay. 
Napoleon asks if he has found Pluto yet, and Julius says how she's sure she's around. And Julius lets Napoleon know how he knows he's going through a hard time and how he knew what he signed up for when they got together and that he has always been cool about his recreational time. And Napoleon is like, don't complain about the drugs. And Julius, Julius mentions how it is getting to be a thing. Julius continues and says how he's worried about him and how in the past he's always on top of it, but it seems like he doesn't have it under control right now. He's like, I'm not saying to just say no, but slow down a bit. And Julius says to call it a favor to him if it makes him feel better. Napoleon says how he will take it slow and then the doorbell rings and it's Frederick and he's out of breath because remember he's afraid of elevators so he took the stairs and Napoleon asks him if he wants some coffee and Frederick looks around and says how his place is nice and fancy. Napoleon uh so he meant they also talk about how he hasn't been there before and uh Frederick is like oh I went to the previous one uh but this one's nice. Napoleon says how it will change it will it will change shortly because his boyfriend just resigned and he says he's dead and he doesn't even know it. Frederick apologizes for that and he's like, hey, um, I was hoping for some drugs. <laughs> so he apologizes for being so blunt about it, but he knows how he's he's like, I'm having a really hard time and how boring. And she's and he's like, Well, she's melted, and he shares how he found out that she had a burner phone and he can't help but wonder why she was at. And Napoleon finishes the sentence, Perry's orgy. And Frederick tells him to not say that word. And Napoleon apologizes. And he changes to Perry's cuddle puddle, which is much worse because they all turn into a puddle of like whatever that you turn into when you melt. <laughs> Frederick says how he needs something to get him focused and keep his energy up and make him feel not awful for just one minute. Napoleon goes to his closet and pulls out his drug stash and he says how he's thinking that coke will work for him and to just stick stick, stick with the classic because the designer stuff is too dangerous for him. He throws him a bag with a lot of coke and he tells him to not overdo it and to just do a few bumps a day to get the edge off. Edge off. Napoleon puts the drug stash back and he notices that Pluto's replacement is hiding in the closet again and the cat swats at his face. Napoleon yells out, fuck, fucking hell, grab the cat, as he holds his eye, and Frederick is just looking around all confused, and then Napoleon says how he's going to skin the cat alive, and then he goes to his bathroom, and his eye is all bloody, and Frederick tells him to wash it out real good, and then he just stands there awkwardly as Napoleon continues to yell out in pain and frustration, and Frederick says how he's just going to take the coke, and he grabs it and walks out. We're now with Tammy, and she's... um. She has like those, it's not like the the machine where you walk in place. What the fuck are they called? What the fuck are they called? <laughs> Let me look it up. Machine where you walk in place. What is it called? A treadmill. <laughs> so she has like those desks that you put a treadmill under so she's working and walking at the same time. Um, and she's watching one of her husband's workout videos and it's live and she and as she reads over her plan for the launch of Goldbug. I feel like I, so Goldbug, they keep throwing little jabs at, what the fuck is her name? That one uh, actress that has like a lifestyle subscription now. Fuck, what's her name? 
white actress, of course, that sells candles of what her vagina smells like. You know who I'm talking about. So that's kind of what they're trying to mirror into Goldbuck, but like make it better. So that's what Tammy Tammy has been working towards. Um, so we can see that the workout video is live and Bill says how they're going to bring out the Bill T Nation Goldbuck Gold contest winners. And the winners come out and Bill says how they got they'll get a tour of Bilti Studios along with the complete Goldbug makeover to celebrate the new lifestyle brand Goldbug, which launches on Thursday. Tammy is looking at the video and she sees that one of the winners who is there at the studio is none other than Verna, her fucking self. Fucking Verna, dude. <laughs> and Tammy is shocked to see her there and she continues to look at the video as Bill and the people work out. We're back with Napoleon and he sits at his desk to play some video games and he leans back in his gaming chair and then he notices that there's a dead pigeon in his chair that he had been sitting in and he yells out, fucking hell. He takes the dead pigeon in a bag and he goes and puts on his slippers and he notices that there's something inside his slippers and he sees it's a dead mouse and this fool is seething in anger now. It cuts to Verna as the as the animal shelter employee getting there and she says how she was surprised to get his call and napoleon is just saying how he can't find that little fuck anywhere verna says how cats are predators and how it's in their genes even though they were domesticated a long time ago and she says how they like to leave little gifts and she calls them harmless unless he's a mouse so he's she's basically calling napoleon a mouse but napoleon doesn't get it so he shows her his bathtub, which has a bunch of dead mice, pigeons, etc., that he's been finding around the apartment. And he asks Verna if that looks normal to her. And she's like, I'm a little surprised she put them in the tub. Then Napoleon explains that he found the little her little gifts all over the house and how one was on top of the fridge and that he didn't know where to put them. And he asked her to take the cat back and how she most likely will need to be euthanized um, since she's a fucking psychopath. Verna looks around the apartment and she mentions how the cat is in the walls and Napoleon is like, what? And Verna tells him to listen and he hears the cat meow through the walls. He's startled as he follows the sound and Verna explains that cats are apex predators and how they can lengthen their spines for short bursts of speed, 30, mi 30 miles an hour, um, and how they can narrow their shoulders and chest to fit into small spaces and jump nine times their size from a standing position and land on their feet at any time they fall. They eat their prey to get taurine, an essential amino acid. She's like, cats don't make enough of it, so they have to eat it. They are predators because they're deficient. And Napoleon is startled by another nice, another noise in the wall and Verna goes, a lot like your father, aren't they, Leo? He turns around to look at her, and he seems confused, and she's like, heads up, as she points behind him, and the cat jumps at his face and begins to attack him, and the, and Pluto's replacement scratches at his neck, and Napoleon manages to get the cat off of him, and he begins to press one of its eyes into its head. The cat runs up to hide, and Verna turns to look at Napoleon, and she looks so... He looks at her and she looks as if her eye has been ripped off her face and she begins to lick her hand like a cat de does. Napoleon looks at her in terror and then when he looks back up, she's not there and he says, you were right, Jules, I should take a break from the drugs. 
However, he then hears meowing noises coming from the walls again, and then he looks so fucking angry and goes up to a wall and puts his ear to ear to it, and he freaks out, and he starts yelling to stay right there. And he goes and grabs a replica of the Thor hammer that he has in his condo, and he begins to hit it against the wall, making a hole. And when he sticks his hand in there, the cat attacks it, and Napoleon hits the hammer against the wall again. We then see Frederick sitting by Maury's side in the hospital, and he just did a bump of coke, a bump of coke, and he looks at the phone and says, "Oh, that's nothing." And then he takes another bump. He grabs the phone and he goes up to Maury, and he's like, "Hey, it's me, it's Freddy Bear. Are you awake?" He takes her finger and tries to open the phone with her fingertip, but that does not work because her fingertip is melted off, or like her, what are they called? your finger what are they called what are they called why can't i think of words right now it's fine it's fine it's fine so he begins to un- unbandage her head as he says oh fuck it and mary begins to we to wheeze whiz whiz w-h-e-e-z-e whiz no that's not how you pronounce wheeze <laughs> where she's like Ugh! That's what I meant. So he exposes her burnt face and he tries to unblock the phone with her face, but that does not work either. Also, unrelated, but I recently like blocked off my eyebrows because I wanted to do like try the no eyebrow look. And when I tried to unblock my phone, it didn't like recognize me because I had no fucking eyebrows. Isn't that crazy? So if my phone didn't recognize me with no fucking eyebrows, it's literally not going to recognize Tammy with all of her face burned off. Just saying. So we're now with Tammy and Bill, and Tammy's going off on him because Berna was in his workout video, and Bill lets Tammy know how he knows the rules and how he would never see one of the girls outside of the house, and Tammy says, yes, because I would kill you. Bill asks if she was sure that it was her, and Tammy explains that she was standing right behind him, wearing the same wig, and how he had to have seen her. And he asks if she got a freeze frame, and Tammy explains how it is alive and how she did not get that. Bill... What did I write here? Oh, Bill the reverse cuckold. (laughs) Bill, like the reverse cuckold he is, apologizes for not having seen Verna. Like, what, bro? Like, what are you apologizing for? And says how she should have seen her. And he tells and tell her to get lost. Tammy likes this response. And Bill tells her how she has got to sleep and how her not sleeping is not healthy. And Tammy just says how she's going to email Lauren to tell Candy how she's being unprofessional. We then see Roderick sitting in front of a fireplace having a drink. And then Juno gets there and she's like, you look lost, old man. And he apologizes and says how he must be. Juno says how she was thinking she would distract him. And she's wearing this like red long flowy cover up that looks fucking amazing. And he asks how she's doing and how her leg feels. Uh, So I don't know if I mentioned this. Literally, Juno doesn't have a leg. Like she has like those attachments. And that's what happened. That's when she was in that accident. She lost her leg. And Roderick wanted to meet her. She was taking like huge amounts of the pill that he created for of Ligodone. So that's so he asked about her how her leg feels and she says how she feels good and she was like oh i was like thinking of backing off of ligodome for a bit 
look, the pill. And Roderick wants to know why. And she says how she doesn't know and how she was just reading. And she explains that she loves it, but she wants to try it for a few days, like not taking like the dosage. And Roderick is like, how would that look? And he says how Juno is a proof positive and how she's a walking rebuttal to all of the assholes out there and how she has taken more Legadone than any person he knows and how she's thriving and how she's the most beautiful proof. He says how he could, he's like, I, I could use some cheering up now. And how she mentioned, uh, and now that she mentioned it, and then he unwraps her cover up and she's like, what do you say? He's looking at her with desire and then out of nowhere, he sees a burned arm come around her as if someone was like trying to hug her from behind. And then the camera pans back and we see that it's Perry's burned body holding Juno. Roderick is paralyzed by fear and Juno asks him what is wrong. And then Perry gets really close to his face and Roderick begins to pull back. It cuts to Madeline telling Juno to go to bed and we see Roderick in bed and he's explaining to his sister how the doctor came by a few nights ago unannounced and she asks what it is and he says, Cadison, same as mom. Madeline says, okay, that's five years on the outside. Roderick says how it's pretty advanced so it could be much, much less. He says how he knew vascular dementia could cause hallucinations, but he just didn't think it would be like that. Madeline mentions Victorine's name and Roderick says how he thought the same thing and how if her contraption really works, it can buy him some time, prevent the strokes, mitigate the brain damage. She wants to know what meds he, he like the doctor wants to put him on and Roderick's response that the, that the doctor wants him to be on Respiral and Madeline says, Respiral, Risperdal, he wants you an antipsychotics, I'll rip his fucking throat out. Roderick's response, it might do frankly, and he tries to tell her what he saw. But Madeline tells her brother how Victorine will get her hot heart monitor thing working. And Roderick just says, same as mom. And Madeline tells him to stop. And then they stay quiet. Caught to Jules getting to the condo and he's about to ask what is all that noise. But when he walks in, he sees Napoleon is pretty much demolishing the place. Julius sees Napoleon and he's all bloody just going at the wall with the hammer as Napoleon says how he's almost got her. Julius asks what's happening and Napoleon is just, he just keeps like hitting the hammer against the wall and Julius is just standing there paralyzed by fear. Napoleon breaks through the wall and he sees Verna's dead body slumped against the inside of the wall and the cat is sitting on her shoulder and it hisses at Napoleon and Napoleon yells. Julius is like, what? which snaps, snaps Napoleon out of it for a bit. And Napoleon asks, you don't see it? And when he turns to look at the wall again, the body and the cat are gone. Napoleon then sees the cat standing in the balcony and Napoleon runs towards the balcony with the hammer raised to attack the cat. And like the cat is like standing on the ledge of the balcony and Napoleon runs towards the balcony with the hammer raised and he just goes over the railing and he falls to his death. We then see some shots of the house and we notice that the, de the dead animals he had found throughout the apartment were just hallucinations because the bathtub is empty. And then a black cat with the collar with the letter P goes up to him and jumps on his back and then meows. Title card, The Fall of the House of Usher, end of episode. <laughs>
All right, fucked up fam. Let's get started with our segments, beginning with that shit's traumatizing. Finding out your sister is dead two days after your brother has just died in a horrible, horrible fucking accident. And then your sister also died in a horrible, horrible fucking accident, mauled by a chimp. Oh, I could finally pronounce it correctly. Love that for me. Iconic. (laughs) Um, That's not funny. That's traumatizing. That's so traumatizing. And I am trying to understand why Napoleon is the most affected by this. Because if you see the other siblings, they're just like, eh, eh, Perry died, eh, Camille's dead, eh. We got we all got shit going on. Shit happens, you know. Uh RIP. RIP to the I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. But honestly, I feel like Napoleon is genuinely affected by this. And even Roderick said it. He's like, my child or like my children had never dealt with loss before, and like avoidance was their only way to confront the loss. And but I really think that. Napoleon was the only one that really had to apply the avoidance tactic because everyone else was just like nonchalant about it. Uh, Fucking Tammy is like, I have my gold bug, my gold bug launch. Frederick is like, my wife is in the hospital and she doesn't have skin anymore. Um, And then fucking Victorine is like, I'm about to go into human trials. Like, I can't be dealing with this shit right now. And Napoleon is just like, I don't know if it's like the profession that Napoleon chose. Like, why is he more empathetic than the rest of his piece of shit siblings? I'm not saying he's a great person. He's not. He's fucking not. Okay. And we'll get more into it. But I don't know. Maybe I'll rate the children and the Usher kids in the wrap up episode so I could really give my thoughts about who I think is the least bad versus who I think is the fucking worst. And I think that would be very interesting for us to go through that. Yes, us. Hi. Hi. Us. Together. Like the fucked up family that we are. Exactly like the ushers. Ah, full circle moment. I fucking love that shit. No, but imagine the trauma though. I can't even begin to comprehend, like, families who, like, experience a loss where multiple members of their family are killed, like, in a car crash or something, and then they have to bury both of them. And even, like, Napoleon is like, what the fuck do you do in this scenario? Do you just have, like, a duo funeral, or do you just go to two funerals on the same day, and what's fucking worse? I would say just one and done. I would just say, okay, we're gonna merge. We're gonna merge. It's a merger. Why am I laughing? It's so fucked up. And I think like Napoleon might have been the glue between. I don't know. I feel like he's just an easy to get along with guy. Maybe he wasn't that like dramatic and shit. And the fact that both Perry and Camille went to him before they died. Like Perry asking if he had the hookup and Camille being there to try to control the narrative after Perry was dead. And they had uh, both of them had heartfelt moments because Camille was explaining how she was like, well, Perry had a heartfelt moment with Napoleon when Napoleon is like, dude, you're so much better than 
what you give yourself credit for. You're like, you're so much better than a drug dealer and you're so much better than uh, a DJ. You just got to find your full potential. And then with Camille, he's like, I don't think, well, he was a little fucked up, so he didn't say a lot. But then Camille was the one that kind of was like, I just feel like I am a fan a ceiling fan and I'm not going anywhere and I just turn and I turn and I turn stories around and that's what I do and and like I'm not going anywhere like there were genuine fucking raw moments with these characters and Napoleon was kind of like the repeating factor between these two different interactions I don't know I'm so fascinated by Napoleon Napoleon like I want to Mike Flanagan, it's me again. <laughs> Mike, Mike, it's your girl, the beautiful, the talented, the funny. We should make a song. The other day, I told my sister, like, "Hey, if I if I make you a song, would you sing it?" And I was like, I, I wanted to do like a rap or something, um, but I I didn't write it. I need to. I need. I'm gonna. I'm gonna write a rap. I'm going to write the best fucking rap ever and I'm going to be famous for something I'm not even that passionate about. But you know what? I'm going to do it just because I can and because I want to and because I know I'm going to be good at it. That's it. That's it. And again, ADHD brain. I'm so sorry. Sweaty? Sweaty. I'm so fucking sorry. And then, yeah, like Napoleon is still going through it. Like his dad calls him. He doesn't believe it. He's like, you say what? You say what, mate? No, he didn't say that, but he didn't say that. Said that. Said that. I can't even speak. I not me using a derogatory term for Mexicans. I said speak instead of speak. But I'm I am Mexican. Okay? I know y'all are all talking about me saying some shit shit like fucking beaner with her horrible fucking pronunciation. I don't give a fuck. You want to fight? Drop your pin and I'll pull up. I don't know what's going to my brain right now. I'm fucked up, fam. I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, but... Okay, so they're all in the conference room again. Minus two. Minus Perry and Camille. R.I.P. R.I.P. to the sexual deviants. We stand because aren't we all sexual deviants? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. And again, we don't kink shame here. We don't. We don't. And then, like... Roderick and Madeline are like, Napoleon, since you're kind of close to Camille, we think you should give the statement from the family. And he reads it and it's just like bland and like not showing any emotion. And it's just like a statement written by the Pym Reaper. And he's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, you really want me to go out here while I'm grieving and just say this shit so we could cover our asses? That's fucking stupid. And I love that Napoleon was like, Dude, like, I don't give a fuck. Write me off the uh, inheritance. I'm out of here. Like, this fool's about to lose out. Like, he would rather get the fuck out of there and and lose out on millions and millions of dollars than stay with his piece of shit family for just one second uh, longer than he had to. And I respect that. I respect that. Probably because he already made his fortune. So he doesn't give a fuck about the inheritance. I mean, it would be like a nice bonus. Um... But I don't think, well, I don't know. 
now that I think about it, I'm like, he probably has millions of dollars already. So an inheritance is just whatever to him. So that's why he was like, fuck you and fuck your inheritance. Um, <laughs> so this one, I struggled. I was like, should I put it under that shit's traumatizing? I literally don't have anything under that shit's heartwarming slash lighthearted. I don't, I don't. But I thought it was funny at the moment. But seeing it from the perspective of this character, I was like, oh, okay, so they're at the conference room, right? And then um, fucking Napoleon is like, oh, give my inheritance to the, ne the next fucking junkie freak you run into, like referencing Juno, Roderick's child bride. And then like he leaves and then like Tammy and like Victorine are like, is she in the, insur in, in the inheritance? No, she, she hasn't been written into the inheritance, right dad? Dad, can you confirm? Can you please confirm or deny if this bitch is written into the inheritance? Please, please, I'm begging you. And then and then Juno's like, I'm literally right here. <laughs> She's like, why? okay, first of all, why doesn't Roderick defend his girl? Roderick, gentlemen, please, you're old school. I mean, you're old, so you're old school. Defend your girl from your kids. Your kids are fucking assholes to her. And she, I mean, she's young, but that doesn't make her a bad person. Like, well, maybe Roderick married her for, like, with interest in mind. Like, oh, this bitch can, <laughs> can handle a shit ton of my pills, Ligodone. Maybe I'll marry her and it'll be good press. And you could see that because when... Juno brings up that she wants to lay off the ligodome for a bit just to see how she feels. He's like, how would that look? How would that look that our star patient wants to get off the drug that I created and the star patient is also my wife? Conflict of fucking interest, my dude. Conflict of fucking interest. What the fuck was I going to say now? Oh, yeah. This is fucking scary. Being tormented by something only you can see. Obviously, at the time, Napoleon isn't aware of that, right? He, in his mind, he bought a, he killed he killed a cat. He killed his boyfriend's cat. Pussy, if 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 you may, if I may, <laughs> you may eat. I may say, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> kills the cat, murders the pussy. I need to stop. Someone stop me. Who's letting me rec I need someone to take away my mic. No, please. Please, please. I'm begging you. Don't do it. Um, kills a cat. <laughs> I'm just going in circles. Goes to the animal shelter. Flirts with the animal shelter lady that turns out to be Verna. Uh, we stand. We love. We love in one of her little costumes. Um, she looks like an e-girl. And then gets the cat that she was like this cat is reserved let me let me show you another kitten let me show you another pussy that doesn't even look like the one you have like pluto but she's like trying to test i think that's something that verna does she she's been testing all of them for perry he's like you don't have to do this right like you don't have to turn on the sprinklers. Like, it could just be a normal party. Like, why does it have to go beyond that? And we also know that it implies to, like, what he was doing in the background where he was taking video footage to blackmail people in the future because he was like, that's where the real money's at. 
And with Camille, she's like, you're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be here. Like, what is this huge, like, competition that you have with your sister where you want her, you want to be her downfall? Like, you could leave right now and it could be so different. But no, so she's testing Napoleon in the same in the same way, but with the cat, like, dude, you don't need to trick your boyfriend into thinking that this is his cat. You could just come clean. You could just be honest. Like, show a little fucking humanity, and he does it, you know? And then, so he's being tormented by this thing that he can't see, having dead animals all over the house. That's just so terrifying. First of all, fucking disgusting. I don't want to see a carcass of a pigeon, um, of a what else rats like like the cat the quote-unquote cat was bringing a shit ton of stuff and just leaving leaving little gifts leaving little presents all over the house and then like getting physically attacked because i don't know about you have y'all ever been bitten or scratched by a cat not fun not fun my dude i zero out of ten do not recommend those beasts are ferocious like Verna said, like it's in their instinct to be um to hunt. They're hunting, you know? It's it's in their fucking DNA. So yeah, they might get a little aggressive at times, but it is what it is. They've just been domesticated. I related well not related. My a family member, a really close family member of mine was being tormented by a spirit, like literally only her, and it wasn't the house they were in. Like this shit has been stuck to her for like the longest time and it's horrible because like you're never at peace you can never fully rest with that thing lingering in the back of your head or just like it fucking like saying thing to you well for for my family member was they would literally talk to her like she would be trying to fall asleep and it would talk to her or it it, it would transform it would transform into other family members like faces but then she would look at it and she'd be like oh fuck no that's not them that is not that that's horrifying ah i don't know how my family member (laughs) dealt with that i don't think i don't think she has yet um but i feel like it's very similar to what napoleon is experiencing but with like an animal right i don't know i just i wouldn't know what to do what am i gonna say um, two things I think that I wanted to mention. What's up with Fre- Freddie coming? Wait, I mean, yes, Napoleon is the drug dealer of the family. Not really. He just has his own supplies. But Perry came to him, and now Frederick is coming to him, asking him for drugs. And I feel like Napoleon didn't really think it through. Because last time he gave someone drugs... Yes, it was just fucking, what was it? The the drug to get your boner up? To get your boner up? What is it called? So he could be a fucking stallion? Uh, that's what he gave to Perry. And then to Frederick, he's giving him coke. And he's like, don't overdo it. I don't know. I, I feel like if my sibling came to me and they were like, can you get me this hard drug? I would be like, absolutely fucking not. Uh, I'm gonna steal you across the border and put you in rehab forcefully force you into rehab. I'm sorry. That's just me. 
that's just me um that's how it works in mexico like in the u.s you know you could you have to um consent to be in rehab not in mexico not in mexico we do things differently they're like okay it's called the nexo like what they they take you to rehab but they they steal you it's kind of it's probably really traumatic to be it's probably really fucking traumatic but i feel like it it has helped in other cases Because you force the person to want to let go of drugs instead of like in the U.S. It's like the person has to realize that they've hit rock bottom before they actually want to go to rehab. It's kind of reminding me of Hill House when fucking Luke asked Nelly to get him to for him for his last score before he goes into rehab. And that just makes me really sad. But in this scenario, like Frederick, I mean, Napoleon was like, yeah, sure, buddy. Uh, I got some designer shit, but honestly, nah, you ain't ready for that. Stick to Coke, stick to the classics. I think it's just very, maybe it's just a really rich person conversation. I don't know. I would, I personally wouldn't understand. Also, when fucking Juno and Roderick were about to get a little sexy, a little sexy time, a little steamy. Um, and then Perry's burnt arm wraps around Juno. Terrified. Like, just, just picture Roderick, right? Like, he's like, ooh, my, my child bride looks hot as fuck with her nightgown. Like, he's about to get a boner, a, bo- a boner. <laughs> a boner um and then his dick just hides right back that boner disappears right fucking away as he sees his dead son like hugging his wife from behind and his dead son is all burnt up fucking terrifying fucking terrifying what else what else oh this one kind of broke my heart like Roderick explaining to Madeline that he has the same disease as his mom because we got to see them in the first episode as kids and how much it affected them like seeing their mom degrade like mentally and emotionally and just become a shell of the woman that she used to be and knowing that there's a possibility well I feel like Roderick is more conscious of the possibility that that could happen to him like exactly the same and Madeline thinks that money controls everything so she's like don't worry about it. We'll get the best doctors. Victoring is working on her heart mesh thingy. We got this figured out. You're going to be fine. And she's like, and don't even mention mom. Because he's like, but mom. And he's like, no, I don't want to fucking hear it. I feel like Roderick has come to terms with it while Madeline is still in the mode where she's like, okay, we're going to figure shit out. We're going to make this work. You're going to be fine. But it's still like, I know deep down she's like, fuck. But again, they're in different economical situations. When it happened to their mom, they were dirt poor. Um, their mom was fucking a religious nutjob, not to be, not to talk ill of the dead. But this bitch didn't even want to take medicine, and now they're like at, at a different t- tax bracket. So obviously, they have the resources to fight this disease, like ex- the, the same way where how they say that people with money can can fucking get rid of like AIDS and shit like there's always that story about what's his face that basketball player that he got AIDS and but all the money in the world you could get a cure for that shit I don't know I don't know if it's true 
but that's what I kind of related it to. And then, fuck it, I'm so, I feel so bad for Julius. Um, he was, honestly, he was such a light. And I think even Camille was like, I really like your boyfriend. I really like your boyfriend. You should make him your husband to Napoleon before she died. And I think he's an amazing god. Not only was he tolerant of Napoleon's drug use. Not to say that he's an enabler. He's not. He just knew what he got himself into. And, and I can respect that. I can fucking respect that. Um, he was really, like, empathetic about the whole situation. Like, he just lost two of his family members. And he's like, how can I help? What do you need? If you don't need me, I'll st- I'll step aside. Like, I'll let you tend to grieve how you need to. And he was just like, I'm worried about you. Like, I think he was a really caring character in a sea of really horrible fucking people. So it was just refreshing to see that, like, other side of the of the equation. Um, But imagine you're Julius. And you're coming back from whatever the fuck you were doing. And your boyfriend is destroying your fucking apartment, looking psychotic, shirtless, with a death stare. And then he's all scratched up and you're like, what the fuck is going on? And then you see him run towards the balcony full speed and then jump off of it. But in reality, he thought he was about to hit the quote unquote Juno, no, Pluto replacement, their name, the name of the cat and the name of Roderick's wife being so similar, like really fucked me up. But so obviously from Napoleon's point of view, he's doing something completely normal to him. Like this cat is tormenting me. I want to fucking kill it. But from Julius's point of view, he's just seeing his boyfriend have a psychotic break and then kill himself. The trauma, the trauma. How do you even recover from that? With all of the millions, the Usher family is going to give Julius to shut the fuck up. I love that. There was probably something in the NDA. I'm sure Julius got a, got a nice, got a nice check. I hope he did. I hope he did. Um, And like I said, I don't have anything on that shit's heartwarming or lighthearted. I'm so sorry, sweaty. But take it with a grain of salt. Sweeties, sweaties, fucked up fam. If you accidentally kill your boyfriend's beloved cat, maybe, just maybe, that should be your first indication that you should lay off the drugs. I don't know. Like, I love when Julia's was like, I'm not saying just say no, but like, take it easy. No, I'm saying, I'm saying just say no. I think it's time to put your foot down and be like, fuck, I blacked out and I murdered something. I murdered a a defenseless animal. And at the end, we find out that that all he experienced was hallucinations because when his body hits the ground, we see fucking Juno and we know it's her because it's a pink collar with the letter P No, with the letter J. No, with the letter P, Pluto. Pluto is the name of the cat, not Juno. Kind of walk all over Napoleon's dead dead body and meow. So at the end of the day, he hallucinated everything. But I feel like if the drugs you're taking are, are making you hallucinate, take a step back. Say no to drugs. 
who was that fool? What was that fool's name? No. What was that uh, campaign about saying no to drugs? I don't remember. Obviously, I don't remember. <laughs> no, no. I was a good kid girl. I was so good. I was such a nerd, but also popular, but also really funny, but also really beautiful. I, Me right now is basically me in high school. Just letting you know. Just being humble. Just being honest. That's all you're going to get from me. Um. All right. But that's pretty much all I've got for you. Fact. I can't speak. Fucked up fam. Um, so you already know the drill. Follow the podcast on social media on Instagram where that show effed me up. Uh, and on Twitter where that D-A-T show fucked me up. Fucked is spelled without a U, so it's F-C-K-E-D. Uh, remember to give the podcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And you can also leave a written review. It helps with visibility. It helps with the algorithm. It helps more people become part of the fucked up fam and join our shared psychosis. Do you also want to be like Napoleon and hallucinate and destroy your apartment and then jump off a balcony? You can do that, too, if you join the Fucked Up Fam and join our shared psychosis. No, no, no. I was just joking. For legal reasons, that is not going to happen, Fucked Up Fam, all right? Um, But, yeah, thank you so much for listening. I love you all so much. And remember, be gentle, be kind, and don't be an asshole unless you absolutely have to be. Goodbye.